Hello and welcome to Wisdom Talks, the podcast accompanying the METIS project. METIS is an internet portal for intercultural wisdom literature and wisdom practices, which can be accessed via www.metis.ethz.ch. In today's Wisdom Talk, we will turn our attention to Yijing, or the Book of Changes in English. Here to explain about this ancient Chinese divination text is Kai Marshall, Associate Professor at the Department of Philosophy at National Jiangzhou University, Taipei, Taiwan. Kai specializes in Chinese philosophy, political philosophy, and ethics. My name is Elian Schmid, and I'm delighted to welcome our listeners and, of course, Kai Marshall, who is here in the studio with me today. Yeah, hello, Elian. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. This is great fun. So just to start with what is exactly the book that we're talking about, what is this Book of Changes? Yeah, so the Book of Changes is really a mysterious text. I think many of our listeners will just uh, the first association is mystery or kind of ancient oriental wisdom. So it's something very alien to us. But then if we look closer, we realize that this uh, the eating is a cultural phenomenon. It is already deeply embodied in our own Western modernity. So if you think of the eating, you might think of the 60s, the kind of where the, the hippie generation there were the first to discover this sacred book from the East. So they were reading this famous Richard Wilhelm translation. And then when they're doing um, the, yeah, they were engaging Oriental wisdom and it became a really kind of a pop phenomenon. So you find the book eating in, in Bob Dylan, in John Cage, or even in Sigi Jung, because we are here in, in Zurich, but also in the architecture of J.M. Pai. So it's somehow everywhere. And it's even, of course, part of esoterics as we know it today. And some very famous mainstream philosophers, for example, Leibniz, have also written about the eating. So it's really a very mysterious text. A very mysterious text, and it seems like a cultural phenomenon as well, like you just described. And could one then talk as of it as being like a pillar or foundation of Chinese philosophy and or culture? How would you kind of describe this? Yeah, so somehow I think it is the most important text, and without this text, we wouldn't have Chinese philosophy. And we wouldn't have even in Taoism and in Buddhism, it has become a very essential part of the philosophical discourse. So what is the Yi Jing? The Yi, this very first word, it's a character in Chinese character, and normally it is translated into as, as change. So it's a book about change. So what kind of change? So the idea is that everything is really not static, but in the flux. So I identify myself as the same person today and even tomorrow, and I, I see a table and I somehow think that a table Today, it will be, it's the same table as tomorrow, but for the authors of the eating, this is not true. So they were convinced that everything is in flux. So this idea of the what we all know, of course, this concept of Tao is crucial here in Chinese philosophy. And somehow the idea is that by reading the Book of Changes and by engaging with this text, we will be able to achieve a sort of a resonance with what so we will attune ourselves to change. So it's kind of still a little bit difficult to understand, but the idea is that human beings, by engaging with this text, can achieve a sort of cosmic resonance. So it's not me against the world, but it's really the strong idea of unity. Me and the universe are just the same thing. Now, how you explain it and how you translate the word to change, this seems like it's relatable to other languages as well, but do you think that the book in itself, is it translatable in its entirety into, for example, English? Or are there things that do not really transcend into other languages? I mean, are we able to really capture the essence of the book if we read it in English, for example? Or do you need to know Chinese? Yeah, that's a great <laughs> question. I think these worries have been 
constantly accompanying the reception of the Western reception of the Book of Changes. So, as I already mentioned, Richard Wilhelm is a very famous translator of, of the Book of Changes. He translated it into German, and this German translation has been retranslated into English. And somehow he was able to make sense of it, so or to make this text into a meaningful text. So he had a great appeal. So even today, as I just mentioned, pop culture, for example, I was recently watching this Amazon series, The Man in the High Castle, and there you see the main figure, Juliana Crane, having a sort of out-of-body experience. So she's meditating and then in this out-of-body experience sees a hexagram. So, so this wisdom comes up everywhere. So you ask me, is it possible to translate the Book of Changes? I would say, of course it is. So it has already been incorporated into our Western culture, modern culture. But then, of course, there are certain elements which are really difficult to express in language. And the first Chinese commentators and readers of this book have often emphasized that there is something which is beyond language. So, and, and if we have a closer look at the structure of this book, then, of course, first and foremost, this is a text. So the text can be dated to around 800 BC. So it's really an old text and, and, and probably one of the oldest Chinese classics. And then there are characters, Chinese characters, texts, but there's also a kind of a, a graphic structure. And, and many of our listeners will know this, that there are these hack famous hexagrams. So famous hexagrams, what is this? So these are just, if you think of it, if you sit in front of a, an empty sheet of paper and, and you draw six lines, like uh, six parallel lines, then this is uh, very simple. Uh, the, the basic structure or the basic graphic element in, in, the, in the Book of Changes. So there are unbroken lines and broken lines. So the unbroken line represents the yang and the broken line represents in. So you have these two forces directly related to this graphic uh, structure there. So the very first uh, character, six yang lines, this is the first character, the, the famous hexagram of qian, which also represents change but also represents heaven. And then the second hexagram is just the opposite. So you don't have six unbroken lines, but you have six broken lines. And these six broken lines represents pure in. So in and yang, these kind of two cosmic forces. And so the first hexagram is associated with heaven, and the second hexagram is associated with the earth. So heaven and earth, this is again a kind of a cosmic pattern somehow, yeah. So now that you explained what exactly the hexagrams are, and before you gave a concrete example of how the hexagrams were kind of used today or contemporarily, could you bring this a bit together to, to explain how we can use these hexagrams? What do they actually mean? I mean, now we have kind of the understanding and how it was applied, but how could I do something with these hexagrams? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. And maybe I should say a little bit more about the text first. So... The text, as I already said, is very old. So in the present state, it has been composed around the year 800 BC. So by certain sages, there are a lot of these Chinese sages like Fu Xi in Chinese culture, and they supposedly created this text by directly observing natural phenomena. So the idea is that, as I already said, this is heaven. Somehow there is a constellation, a configuration in heaven, and by observing them closely, we can understand them better. So this connection to natural phenomena, to the natural world, is very important. And later on, you have Confucius. So Confucius is more kind of a later guy, more or less in the same time frame like Socrates, or a little bit earlier than Socrates, maybe like Plato, so the 5th century, so 6th and 5th century BC. So in, this text was often ascribed to Confucius. Confucius actually hadn't much to do with this text. So in the Analects, there's one famous saying where he said that if I have more time, then I would study the Book of Changes, but actually probably never really seriously changed, studied the Book of Changes. So, But somehow in traditional China, people were convinced that Confucius 
was maybe not the author of the Book of Changes, but the first commentator. So this was very important to establish the authority of the text. So somehow, as you all know, in, in traditional Chinese culture, Confucius was very important. So every text, each text associated with his name was also very important. So people had to study these texts. So, so but like, we don't know who wrote the Book of Changes, actually. Yeah, that's, a, that's more or less the case, the, yeah. the, the fact. Yeah. So, so Fu Xi, these sages, their sages supposedly created the text, but yeah, this is not a historical truth. So it's just a myth. So somehow this book is has this mythical origin there. Mm -hmm. But what is Which important... Which creates more mysticism around it, like you yeah, described yeah. before, so even. People love this. Of course, certain people love this sort of mysticism. But in traditional China, this had a really direct impact on people. So because people were Confucians, the education system was Confucian. So every child had to memorize it, at least uh, children from rich families or who had the means to study. So they had to memorize this text because it was the most important classic so they learned Chinese by memorizing the Book of Changes. So it was somehow everywhere. Everybody, and not only in China, in East Asia, knew these 64 hexagrams. So and each hexagram represents a particular constellation. This is, this is also important to mention. So because um, I said this book is about achieving cosmic resonance and understanding change. So but how actually can we describe change? So the authors of the Book of Changes maintain that we can identify certain constellations. So that each hexagram, and this is a very simple mathematical uh, system, so you have um, two possibilities on each line. You have six lines in total, so you have 64 possibilities. And each of these 64 hexagrams represent one constellation, which we can encounter in real life. So, for example, um, there's this famous third hexagram, which represents the difficulty at the beginning. So this doesn't sound so abstract any longer. This is relative concrete. So the difficulty at the beginning means that as soon as you enter a new stage in your life or as soon as you take on a new job, you might encounter certain difficulties. So this third hexagram difficulty at the beginning will tell you first what kind of constellation you are located in now. So in your life, in, your, in the process of your aging, uh, what is this particular constellation and then how can you cope with this constellation? So it will give you certain advices. So because you have this graphic structure, which I was describing a few minutes ago, but you have also the text. So each of these six lines of each hexagram have certain statements. So these normally are very simple statements. So if you do this, then that might happen. Or if you continue in this action, then this might be dangerous. So very simple, basic advice. And often this is a kind of a warning. You should not continue in this course of action. You should be more careful. It is actually... I mean, before when you described it with, with the mathematics and seeing things and stuff, it sounded super complex. But you said that actually children, that they learn it, do they really also understand it? Is it an easy text in a way? Like, are there several levels of understanding that make it more difficult or easy? Or how do you think that it's approachable, this text? Actually? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think, indeed, there are many different layers. So this basic idea of yin and yang, this, I think even a three-year-old child will grasp easily. And I'm sure in traditional China they were doing this. Because um, when they were learning Chinese, they also often were taught the eating. So they learned this idea of the yin and yang and this basic hexagram structure. Then, but then if you go into the text, immerse yourself more deeply, and then you realize that the language is actually very, very complicated. Most of the text is not philosophical or conceptual. It's rather literary. So you have all kinds of uh, descriptions, literary descriptions of simple situations, which might happen in traditional societies. So... I already mentioned this problem if you encounter difficulties. So 
Sometimes it's also about the king, the king and his ministers. So these kind of simple situations which were happening and or which people were encountering in many traditional societies are also thematized in the Book of Changes because this was an agrarian society. So they often talk about the harvest. They often talk about certain plants and growth on the fields and so on, and, and certain meteorological phenomena are mentioned as well. So if we look at the text today, we kind of need to adapt it to our times. It's not completely relatable to how we're functioning in society today. Yeah, and in a way, already in traditional China, people had to adapt this text to their own needs. So this is actually very interesting. And you have what I was just describing, this more concrete parts or these more concrete past descriptions of certain phenomena, which we all encounter in life, mostly, of course, in agrarian societies. But later on, of course, in China, beginning in the 11th or 12th century, you also had really big cities. So in these big cities, people were also confronted with problems in their life, in their marriage, you know, and, and they had to confront death and, and certain challenges, political struggles. So they were also already at that time translating this very old text to their own language in the 12th century. So we're doing this already. And So the Book of Changes is undergoing changes itself. It has been constantly <laughs> undergone change. And what is really interesting is it is not just kind of life or concrete advice, or this kind of concrete wisdom, but it is also much more. So there's also a part, the great commentary, which is directly about kind of developing a cosmology or a philosophy. So uh, many cosmological ideas in traditional China were directly extracted from the Book of Changes. So you might have heard of this famous notion of Taiji, <laughs> for example. No, Taiji, we all know this. Some people are doing Taiji Quan, so this notion has also entered our language. So what is Taiji? Taiji is kind of a point of beginning. Now, very early on in the emergence of the universe, Taiji had some effect. So if you think of the Bible, you also have a narrative about the creation of the world by God. But in the Book of Changes, you have something similar or comparable, but there's no God and there's even no law. So this whole idea of the law-like kind of a framework which we have at the basis of Western philosophy, European philosophy is very much uh, centered around this idea of a law which is God-given and we don't have this in the Book of Changes. So it's all about this process, the idea of the process constantly changing which behind the randomness, if we only watch closely enough, we will also realize order or even harmony. How does this then go with Buddhism? I was just wondering, because you made a comparison to the Bible, but are there any overlaps or interactions with Buddhist ideas as well? You also already mentioned Confucius, but I was wondering about this kind of... Um, yeah, so yeah, this is a, a wonderful question. So the text itself is associated with Confucianism and also Taoism, so in traditional China, but then with Buddhism entering China around the, the second century, uh, you of course also have these new developments. So and the Book of Changes, to some extent, you can say, is, of course, much earlier than Buddhism. No? So it has been written down very early and much earlier than the first Buddhist sutra. But what is really interesting is that the Buddhist people, uh, monks or philosophers, when they tried to understand Buddhism there in later stages, later dynasties, they often referred to the Book of Changes because there was kind of a, a common discourse. So Confucian, Taoist, Buddhism... These different discourses, they all merged into one. So, of course, it makes sense to some extent because the Book of Changes is about change. Nothing stays the same. We never can enter the same river a second time, only once, and then everything goes away. And uh, Buddhism has a very similar understanding of the world. Know that change is everywhere, it's universal. But then Buddhism adds a very important philosophical idea. It's the idea of emptiness. Whereas, as the readers of the Book of Changes, you could say, still cling to the phenomena so the changing world, 
for a Buddhist, you have to really to transcend the phenomena. You have to break through and, and realize universal emptiness. So there's a certain tension between the Book of Changes and Buddhism. But for example, in the Ming Dynasty, you have Ouyi Zhishu, a very famous Buddhist monk who wrote a commentary, a Buddhist commentary to the Book of Changes. So you see that the Buddhists were also really deeply fascinated by this text. But I'm wondering then, because change is also always something very dynamic, what we think, or something very unsettled. And Buddhism is more something calm, one might say, very simply put. Do these things then clash, or does a Buddhist perspective on the text kind of calm it down a bit? I was just wondering how this goes together. Yeah, that is a very good point. So we are talking today about the Book of Changes. I w would really love to show you these hexagrams, but I'm not able to do this because we just, yeah, we're having our podcast here. So, but it's important to understand that the Book of Changes is first and foremost about visualization. So you have to visualize these hexagrams. So in, in and Yang, I haven't said much about in and Yang. So Yang is this male force, it's activity, it's, it's kind of dynamism, and it's going upwards. And whereas in is kind of associated with the female part. So, and it's, it's kind of passive, it's, it's dark, yang is really bright, and in is dark, and in is cold, and yang is warm. And of course, there is this aspect that the kind of a hierarchy between the genders, and of course, for, for us today, it doesn't make much sense. But in traditional China, this was one way of understanding gender relations. But it's important to emphasize that this hierarchy between in and yang is never static. It's always in the flux, so in and yang are also complementary forces. So you cannot just live from yang. So this male power itself or male force needs to be complemented with in force. So this is, I think, important. And, and because you mentioned this idea of peace of mind and being calm, which is are very important in Buddhism, you can say that they are also important in the Book of Changes because yang, whereas yang uh, represents movement, in represents tranquility. And this kind of a peace of mind. So you have certain hexagrams where you really almost see this idea. If you are willing to really visualize a hexagram, you, you see this peace of mind. So people were doing this in traditional China when they were reading the Book of Changes. It was, was just about understanding it, but really about meditating through it. So we get both things. We, we learn how to cope with many different states of mind in that case. But then also just as a last question, because I see that we're progressed in time, unfortunately. So for me as a beginner in this whole story, how would I go about reading the book? How, how would I start? Can I just delve into it, read the text and kind of look at the pictures, as you said, at the hexagrams? Or should I learn more about the historical context? Or what would you recommend? So I think keeping a diary while reading the Book of Changes is a great idea. So uh, reading the book in itself uh, can be a very meaningful experience, a very beautiful experience, because it's a literary text. So you have all these wonderful metaphors and you have to think about them. You can even experience them. And if you try to somehow engage with the Book of Changes in more depth, then you should write down your experience. So some people recommend that you because you have to throw the coins. Now, there is this idea of the oracle. We haven't said much about it yet. So there is, on the one hand, all this abstract cosmological speculation there, but there's also this very practical aspect that you need to use it as an oracle. And there has always been a tension between these two dimensions. So, But you can use it today, for example, you use the coin oracle and you ask the Book of Changes the questions. For example, what shall I do tomorrow? The more concrete, the better. Shall I buy this new Apple computer or not? And then the Book of Changes will somehow start talking to you. And maybe you should not really, because of, for us as modern people, it's difficult to 
to really believe that this all makes sense or in, in, in the traditional Chinese people were often convinced that behind this process of change there are spiritual agencies, so-called Shenming in Chinese. And Tao is not just a, a force, it's not just a, a naturalistic force, but it, it's more, it's spiritual. So we might have difficulties in believing this, but if you just engage with a text and write a diary and do it on a daily basis for maybe one year or two years, I think you will be transformed and you will understand much better how the Book of Changes can make sense to us today. So I will learn more about the book itself. So, but will And I, about yourself. Uh, about myself. That's, so that's what I wanted yeah. to ask. So <laughs> ultimately, I will learn about, more about myself when so I try to engage with this text. That is, I think, the idea. And many of these hippies in the 60s and 70s, they have done this. So, And if you think, um, for example, composers like John Cage, why were they all so fascinated by the Book of Changes? I think there is this randomness there that you... It's a freshness, and, and I think in the 70s, people were, of course, for, for them, the Book of Changes was, was something really new. So this aleatoriness of something can just happen, it pops out, and you have to react to it. And I think people like John Cage were really fascinated by this, and they have transformed the, the Book of Changes into their own uh, creative visions. Today, we are living in an age of contingency, so with the internet, we have a much bigger aleatory machine, <laughs> so something, anything can happen randomly if we go into Twitter. So the Book of Change is kind of a slower system, so that whereas the internet is really fast, the Book of Changes might teach you another way of relating to yourself at a slower pace. And it also seems to make you a bit more hopeful, it seems. Yeah, absolutely. The book is very positive. So the Book of Changes often speaks about regret and remorse and distress and threatening. But actually, if you count, then um, there are many more instances which are really positive meaning, 430 to 130, I think. So there are 430 instances of auspiciousness, favorableness and advantage, even success. So in a way, it's a very positive book, optimistic. I like that ending. I will go with the optimism and thank you very much for being here. This was really very interesting and I'm looking forward to delving into the book. And yeah, thank you so much for joining me on this talk today. Thank you, Eliane. It was a great discussion. <laughs> Wonderful. So at this point, I would also like to invite our listeners to follow further Wisdom Talks, as well as to curiously plunge into the multitude of texts and further podcasts that can be found on our website, metis.ethz. Ch, the internet portal for intercultural wisdom, literature, and wisdom practices. You can also find more information in the show notes. Thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. This Metamethis Wisdom Talk was produced by Martin Munich and supported by ETH Zurich and the Udo Keller Stiftung Forum Humanum in Hamburg.